Good morning, church. You warmed up. I just got jolted out of worship. I remembered I was preaching then for a moment as we were coming to a close. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, team. Are you all okay? You're in good spirits, you're in good voice, I hear. Isn't it just fantastic to be able to gather together in the presence of God and worship and sit under the Word? <clears throat> as Paul so helpfully reminded everyone, I only work one day a week, so it's nice to, uh, it's nice to be able to do it in such a fashion. Why don't you turn to someone next to you and give them a warm welcome, say hello to them. If you don't know their name, learn their name. Fantastic. And give a wave to everybody watching online at home as well. That's fantastic. They can see you too. Well, it's fantastic to be able to be with you today. I've obviously been here for the last couple of weeks, but I haven't preached to you. So uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, if you've missed me or if you haven't. But today I'm starting a brand new church campaign simply titled Connectivity. Connectivity. And if you're unfamiliar with that language, campaign, campaign is what we title our sermon series. We don't just like them to call call them series. You see, when we call something a series, it's something you sit back and you watch, a lot like Netflix or Prime or Disney Plus, or if you're really rich, Sky Go. And you have all these different episodes that you sit, you chill and you watch. You see, when we say campaign, what we mean is this is something we're learning to put into action. See, the Christian life isn't one where we sit back and we watch. It's one that we live day in, day out in our reality. So this campaign is titled Connectivity, but it centres around prayer. It centres around prayer. And instantly when we say prayer, we all have a stereotype of what prayer is or indeed what we think prayer is. We've seen it, we've heard it, we've watched it. And if you haven't been brought up in church, it could simply be by accidentally turning channel one on or channel two, I'm not sure where it is nowadays, and singing songs of praise. But prayer is absolutely foundational to our life as Christians. If we call ourselves Jesus followers, prayer is really, really vital. It is very simply communicating with God. As Paul said at the moment, we have around 30 people every Thursday gathering right here to learn about Jesus and indeed to learn about faith. And it was helpful this week, actually, that the series that we're going through as Alpha was talking around prayer. And Nicky Gumbel, he said this in his little clip that we were watching together, which I quickly scribbled down at the back of the room. He said, prayer is the most important activity of your life. And instantly when you read that, you can think, goodness me, Nikki, that is a little bit dramatic. Not our family or our work or our health. But he says, no, prayer is the most important activity of your life. One of my favourite theologians and pastors was a man called Leonard Ravenhill, who was really prominent in the 50s and 60s. And he had this little phrase he would say often. He would say, if you are not praying, you are playing. Now, these are all really nice, catchy things and great things that we can tweet and put on Facebook. But if you're anything like me as a Jesus follower, when you hear things like this, you can get a little pang of guilt. Prayer is the most important thing of your life. If you're not praying, you're playing. Why? Because we all have a perception of what prayer is. And more often than not, and this is the people I talk to, not myself, we think that we're not quite measuring up. If it really is this important, we think back to our own meagre prayers Maybe this morning as you stubbed your toe and then you automatically spoke in tongues and then you shouted at your kids and you remembered prayer and you quickly said a few words. But prayer is so much more than that. 
And as I said, we get guilty and we can almost flag a little bit when we hear these short quotes because we just don't see them employed in our own life. Now we're going to go to the Bible first thing, which is always good in church. And I'm going to take you to Matthew 6. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there or swipe there. And let me read you a couple of sentences from Jesus about prayer. And he says it like this. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, that's the churches, and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by others or by many. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, they have received their reward. But instead, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Pay attention to that. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, why don't we all say this together? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pause there. And if you're really holy, you'll go on and do the extra bits For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Amen. But before we dive into this text, let me take you back a couple of weeks. I was really looking forward to my Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, which I don't ordinarily do. Sunday is my favourite day, but I like Monday because Monday is my day off. It's very quiet usually. I can sit in bed, the kids go to school and it's quiet. But this Monday I was looking forward to for a different reason because I was going to a conference. A theological conference sounds very wordy, but it was basically a conference about God. Now, of course, I was looking forward to the content, but the real thing I was looking forward to, to was going to see all my mates. Because being a pastor, we all have like this little pastor's group, but we get dotted all around the country. So I've got pastor friends up north, down south, in Ireland, in Wales, and Two or three times a year, we gather together and we pretend we're listening to the really deep theological stuff, but really we're punching each other, pinching each other and telling jokes. <laughs> so this conference was starting early Tuesday morning, but it was in Swanwick in North uh, Derbyshire, so just south of Yorkshire, quite a way away from here. So my friend, Pastor Carl Johnston from Letchworth, came to pick me up on Monday. I told Becky this was a necessity to get away a little bit earlier to make sure I'm fully ready for the conference. Really, we were going to go out for a meal and have a good time. Anyway, I'm in the car, it's a two and a half hour drive and Carl and I are just chewing the fat, we're talking and uh, we're just catching up and suddenly as we're driving uh, and it's that sort of time of day when it starts to get dark late afternoon, my head starts to hurt and I start to feel a bit queasy and actually a little bit nauseous but I push it to the side and I concentrate and listen to what Carl's saying and after two and a half hours of this, I was starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable but thought I was just getting travel sick Uh, If you don't know me very well, I am massively dramatic, especially when it comes to sickness. I am the epitome of man flu, even if it's just a sniffle. So I'm a little bit worried now. When um, we get there, I just thought, right, it's just a travel sickness. So we dump our bags in our room. We were sharing a room. Um, And a little bit selfishly, Carl went straight to the nice bed. Now, Carl is a little bit older than me, but I've got a bad back. But I get stuck in this cot bed next to the window. Uh, So anyway, that side, we dump our bags down and we go out on the hunt for food. I don't mean with like spears, we, we went to find a courier house. And we get in the courier house and still this 
uneasiness, this queasiness and this nauseousness is just building in me. And I, I start to eat my food, we've ordered, we're eating and the room starts to, to spin. It's almost like I'm in a fishbowl. Now it's not because I'm eating a vindaloo, I'm not that hard, it was a masala, okay? So it wasn't hot, it wasn't the food. I was eating it, I've got my kimono on and I begin to sweat uh, and I make it through the meal. I tried to go to the toilet just when the bill came, but it didn't work, so we split the bill, okay? And then we got back to the hotel, got in the hotel, uh, and we met our other pastor friend, Pastor Jamie from Crawley, and we went to the pub, and because we pastors, we had Pepsis, okay? So we're sitting there around the table having Pepsis, but I just got to this point where I felt so ill, and I, you know that time we get sick come up in your throat, sorry to be graphic, that's happening. And it's not just normal sick, it's masala sick, so it's really uncomfortable, and... <laughs> everything's spinning, I'm feeling really grim, I'm sweating, I'm trying desperately to catch all my friends, but I had to call it a night and say, guys, I'm really sorry, I have to get back to the hotel. Thankfully, the pub was connected to the hotel, I went to my room and I lay in my cot bed, which I think was designed by the prison system. Anyway, I get into bed. (laughs) And as I said, I'm a massive baby, so the first thing I do is text Becky, because Becky makes everything better. I'm a man who really relies on his... Don't do it like that, I'm doing this very selfishly. (laughs) It's selfish because I can milk it with Becky. I can't milk it with Carl. So I'm, I'm texting Becky. I'm saying, hello, Becky, I feel really ill. I need to come home. But then the worst thing happens. And if you've got an iPhone, you'll understand this. You see, the message wasn't blue. It was green. And not only was it green, it had an exclamation mark next to it. And in my sickness and my dizziness, I actually managed to screenshot this text message, this reel of text messages without even realising it. As I was going through my phone this week, it looked something like this. I was going... Hey, I'm not well, can you call me? Not delivered. Hello? Not delivered. I'm sick and I want to come home. Not delivered. <laughs> Hello? Not delivered. You see, what I didn't realise is up in Derbyshire, they're still in like the 16th century. There's no signal in this hotel. There's no Wi-Fi, there's no 5G, there's no 4G, there's not even any 3G. I'm completely stuck and... Husbands, if you are anything like me, you will know when you're sick and then you can't get hold of your wife, it's 10 times worse. And for two hours, I'm, sat, I'm having to sit in the dark because my head is pounding, I'm feeling sick, the room is spinning. And then Carl comes trundling in with his Pepsi hangover, turning lights on. And, and honestly, if we're going to be honest, because we're in church, I did think about asking Carl to give me a cuddle, but I thought it might be pushing our, <laughs> might be pushing our relationship a little bit too far. But the point is, the person that I really wanted and needed and actually the only person who I think, whether it would have worked or not, can make me feel better, I couldn't get hold of. I was in a connection dead spot. And as a preacher, anytime things like this happen, even when I'm sick, I think, actually, goodness me, that's a great illustration. I pulled a Premier in uh, menu and started to scribble on the back of it uh, between throwing up and I did throw up. I tried to do it while Carl was out of the room and not in the room, just started thinking because I felt God speak to me in my sickness. And actually when we look at prayer, it's oftentimes when we most need it, we struggle with it the most. We take advantage in our life when our connection with God is good, when we're on top of the world and actually we maybe don't even think about it. When we need something the most, it always seems to be the way that we can never ever get hold of it or get hold of that person or indeed connect with it. So if it's not too irreverent to use this term, and I believe it was a, an illustration God gave me, I think we can find ourselves often in prayer dead spots where we come into the presence of God, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, but sometimes just desperate to hear from Him and we feel like our prayers are hitting a brick wall. Or is that just me? 
So what I wanna talk to you about this morning as we kick off our connectivity campaign is a couple of prayer dead spots. I think that many of us can be guilty of falling into. Sometimes of our own accord, but sometimes just because of how the way we are wired. So point number one, I've got three points so you can time me. We'll see if we get to all three. I'm watching the time. But point one, if you take notes, write this down. I think a dead spot of prayer we can find ourselves in is when we overcomplicate it. We make prayer very, very overcomplicated. As I said right at the beginning, prayer in its essence, in its most simplest form, is talking to God and then listening to God. It's conversation. But there's something about being a Christian and coming into the church which almost makes us have to complicate everything simple. And indeed, this doesn't, doesn't just happen in church. In life, I think we equate complicated with better. Knowing more with being better. But that's not the case when it comes to prayer. We overcomplicate it. When I first came back to a real faith in Jesus after being brought up in the church, I got a hunger for prayer and a passion for prayer. And I remember going to my home church in South Birmingham to a prayer meeting, really fired up and desperate to connect with God in prayer. I'd recently gone to a conference and as a, as a young people, uh, person, a conference can really do something to you. So just as a side note, we've got Limitless Festival coming up in the summer. If you have a young person, send them to the conference. Things happen outside of our familiarity, I think, that can really awaken us. And this had happened to me as a 20-year-old. And we had this guy come and speak called Pete Gregg, who is the founder of a movement called 24-7 Prayer. So he talked about prayer and it's the first time I ever had felt excited about prayer and went back home to the first prayer meeting our church put on. And it was one of those prayer meetings where we were all sat in a big circle. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting like that? We love circles as Christians, okay? And I remember sitting there, just a fire of passion burning within me to pray and, and someone started praying. And honestly, I've known this lady my whole life. She was in her 70s, but something happened when she prayed. You see, she didn't just sound like this old broomy lady anymore. She sounded like she'd come from Downton Abbey. And she started to use words that I had no idea what they meant. And then the next person prayed. And I don't know if you've been in a situation like this in church, sat in a circle, but around halfway from around the circle, I cottoned on that everybody was praying. And to my horror, I realised that I was going to be expected to pray in front of these people. And then doubly to my horror, I recognised and realised that I was second from last. And this is really, really daunting because not only are these people play, praying absolutely amazingly and eloquently using King James English, they almost seem to pray for the entirety of anything, uh, everything ever. So I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to pray? Because they've prayed everything. And I've never felt the fire and passion of God dim within me so quickly being in that prayer meeting. I couldn't pray like they prayed. One of them prayed for 10 minutes, 10 minutes in prayer. They prayed for everything. I'm trying to look around the room thinking, what can I commit to in prayer? Does the chair need healing? Does the speaker need it? I just didn't know what was happening. But my point is this, I overcomplicated it. And I think one of the biggest things that can cause us to struggle with prayer is listening to others praying. You see, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus told us to do. He said, don't worry about the people standing on corners praying eloquently. He says, go into your room and pray in secret. And as I said, there's something within all of us, I think, that, that just thinks more complicated is better. And there is something else within all of us that wants to make us look good in front of other people. 
We like to be accepted in the group. We like to be welcomed in the group and we like the group to look up to us. And this does something amazing to Christians for the bad sense. It makes us something we're not. So I'll say it like this. The danger is we can sometimes equate eloquence with excellence. I'll say that again. We can sometimes, particularly when it comes to prayer, equate eloquence with excellence, basically meaning we can equate how well somebody speaks and the words they use with how good the quality of the prayer is. And again, this is the complete epitome, the the opposite of what Jesus was saying. Jesus said uh, that those who were standing up on the street corners and those who were babbling using long words were actually doing prayer wrong. The majority that looked up to these people who thought that they got it mostly right, Jesus was saying, actually, they were getting it mostly wrong. But still, we feel like we have to like, keep up with the Joneses. And as we were sat in our Alpha group, I was in Paul's Alpha group on Thursday. Paul said something really, really profound, which happens very, very, very rarely. Okay. We were talking about this exact thing about being intimidated to pray, especially in front of others with people using big words and fancy language and and English words, we don't even know what they mean. And Paul said, actually, when I think back over my years as a Christian, he's been a Christian about 84 years, okay, since he was born. He says, the most powerful and profound prayer that I ever heard wasn't prayed by a pastor or an evangelist or an apostle or an anointed speaker. It was a very, very simple prayer prayed by a salt of the earth Lutonian who was a lorry driver. So he didn't have any theological training, no formal training. You see, when I read Jesus' words, it's a little bit scary because he's saying the professional Christians, the the pastors and the preachers, they were missing the point completely. He said they were praying, but it became more about them than it had about connecting with God. It had lost something. You see, when we think about prayer, it's about relationship. It's not about essays. It's not about word counts. It's not about how long you can pray or about how much of the KJV you can memorise. It is about simply speaking, profoundly but simply, with the Father. One of my favourite pastors, Tyler Staten, is an American uh, pastor in Bridgetown Church. He says it really simply like this. He says, prayer is not the memorising of facts or highlighting of key phrases, and I would add, or Bible verses. It's a relational discovery. I love that, two words, relational discovery. It's not about how much you can recall, how much you can quote, how loudly you can speak. It's about the relationship that you are pursuing. Now, before I get any nasty emails this week, what I'm not saying is you can't use eloquent or long words in prayer. Of course you can. And actually, when I think people do use eloquent and long phrase in prayer, some people, I think it can be an act of worship as well. Some people are very blessed and gifted with language and with poetry and, and with words, wordsmiths. And there can be a real anointing on that. So I'm not saying don't use long words. What I am saying is it's not about that. It's about authenticity. It's not about complexity. It's about where it comes from. Not about what's said. It's not about it coming from your mouth, but about coming from your heart. And really when we look at authenticity, I think this is key when it comes to prayer because it's all about how we view God. I think sometimes we're not so much bothered about what other people think, especially when we're not, you know, in a group, we're praying by ourselves. But I think sometimes it can be about how we view God and how we think God views us. It's a little bit like this. You know, when the phone rings and it's an unnamed, uh, unknown number, so no name on it is no number. 
and you pick up, you say hello, and then you hear it's the bank. And this happens with my wife. I've never heard her voice change so quickly from like, brought up in Bewley, from, from a West Midland girl to something from the Crown. We just changed something. Or when the school calls, she shouts, she's shouting at me, Mike, I need a cup of tea. And she goes, hello, Mrs Nichols." <laughs> and we all do it, don't we? We all have the phone voice and the bank's calling or you know, the mortgage broker or the insurance person. Because we like to present a view of ourselves that we've got it all together. We're very calm, we're very, very eloquent, we're very posh. But this translates as well into our prayer time and indeed how we approach God. So the second dead spot I think we could fall into very easily is having the wrong view of God. Having the wrong view of God. Having a picture of God in our mind of how we think He is. And so we change ourselves according to how we think He wants to see us. And again, Nicky Gumbel said it like that this, this week on our Thursday Alpha Group. He said, when I was talking to someone about the God that we were talking about, I asked this man to explain that God. And he began to explain this, uh, this God who was cosmic and majestic and removed. And Nicky said, let me just stop you there. See, the God you're speaking about isn't the God that we are talking about. You have the wrong view of God. So in a sentence or in a phrase, I'd say it like this. How we view God is directly linked to how we approach and interact with God. How we see Him will define how we go to Him. And this doesn't just happen in prayer. This happens with everything, absolutely everything. And as we look through the Bible, we can see this happening time and time again, even so far back as Genesis, okay? Right back at the very beginning in the garden. And we see this uh, moment where Eve is, is talking to the serpent, if you know the story. And the serpent is talking with Eve about a command that God has instituted. So God had given Adam and Eve the garden to run free in, okay? To cultivate it, to own it, to, to, to bring it to fruition. But he said, there's just one tree. Just one, don't touch it. And actually, as the, the serpent begins to talk to Eve, he subtly begins to change her view of God. You see, even Adam had no problem with God before they saw him as massively generous. God had given them everything. But the serpent didn't mention that. He just concentrated on the one thing that they thought they lacked. And it's like with your children, you give them one rule. It's the only thing they're gonna do. Don't do this. Well, of course they're gonna do it because... You told them not to. And this is what the serpent does with Eve. And when you get into Genesis, there's a technical thing happening as well with the language, which you don't necessarily always see just reading it straight in English. You see, in Genesis 2, all throughout Genesis 2, when we talk about God or when God's name is written, it's written like this. It is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Now the word Yahweh, even today, Jews won't utter. It is the most personable, intimate name that they have for God. So they would write it, but they would never speak it. And in Genesis 2, we hear about Yahweh Elohim, personable. Now when the serpent is talking to Eve, something interesting and technical happens. He just talks about Elohim. He drops the personable. Elohim, it's, it's translated God. However, it is a title. And when we look through the Old Testament and Elohim is used, it's not just used for Yahweh. Elohim is actually plural and means gods. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see Asherah and Baal and the pantheon of Canaanite gods. They are also called Elohim. So the serpent has taken away the personableness 
of the interaction of who God is to Eve. And he begins to try and shift her view. And if you know the story, he was very successful with that. It's a little bit like this. When you go to the hospital, you'll meet Dr. Dr. Dave. You won't ever call him Dave, you'll call him Dr. When you go to a consultant, you will call him Mr. You won't call him Mr. Mike. Sometimes people will call me Pastor or Pastor Mike. There's a formalness to it and that's okay. But when we drop the personal, something shifts and something happens. You see, I don't imagine that consultant or doctor going back to their spouse, whether it's their husband and wife, and then referring to them as doctor. Doctor, would you like lasagna for tea or jacket potato? When I get home and I see my kids, they don't say, welcome, pastor. They say, hello, dad. I try and get Becky to call me pastor, but she (laughs) insists on Mike. But can you see what is happening here? It's very, very subtle, but very, very impactful. It's title, not personable. So the, the serpent, when he's talking to Eve, he begins to shift subtly her view of God. He drops the personable and uses the abstract. And it subtly demotes God from a generous father to a distant and stingy dictator. Why, well, he said you couldn't do that. Oh my goodness. I imagine the serpent is a bit camp. Oh my goodness. He, he said you couldn't. You couldn't touch that. Why? Why did he do that? And instantly Eve is thinking, actually, why did he say that? We forget about all the generosity he's given us and all the magnitude of the things that he dropped in their lap and told them to cultivate and own and focuses, focuses on the abstract. And again, this was millennia ago and we still do the same today. People view God in the wrong way. Many view God as this like cosmic policeman desperately trying to give you a speeding ticket in your spiritual life desperately trying to catch you for what you have done wrong. Or maybe a ruthless judge, we're scared to approach him because we think we're going to be sentenced. And so we only approach him with a fear and a formality. You see, we get to Jesus and something amazing happens. Two words that changed everything forever. He said, when you pray, pray our Father. Our Father. Now for us, this isn't like a big deal. My little girl's just turned four, can barely speak. But when we say, Ida, shall we pray? She begins by saying, our Father. It rolls off the tongue, it's familiar. We pray it in school, we pray it in church. We pray it all the time. When we think of prayer, we think of our Father. We pray the Lord's Prayer. But you need to understand what was happening here. You need to understand the magnitude of this. And to do this, I'll put on my first century glasses, okay? We all see the world through a lens, all of us. We all have a worldview. And the majority of us sat in this world room will have a Western worldview. We have 50 nations in our church, so that's a, a generalised sweep. But we have a Western-eyed worldview and we definitely have a 21st century worldview. When we read the Scripture, this is an ancient document. We can't read it as a 21st century person only. We need to also understand what it's saying at the time. So we need to put on our, our lenses. You see, when God prays, uh, Jesus prayed our Father, He uses this word Abba. And this isn't like the take a chance on me. Okay, so different Abba. (laughs) Different Abba. You see, Abba is the most personal, intimate name for father. And still today in the Middle East, children will run up to their father and say Abba. And father is still a little bit formal. If you look at the root of this word, it actually means daddy. Daddy is so intimate and personal. Now let's remember who Jesus is talking to. And and I find it fascinating as a side note, out of all the things that the disciples could ask Jesus to teach them, 
Like if I was the disciples, I'd be like, Jesus, can you teach me how to walk on water? Jesus, can you turn, teach me how to turn that water into wine? Jesus, can you teach me how to raise the dead? Jesus, can you teach me this and can you teach me that? that? But only one thing is recorded in Luke 11 verse one, that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them and it's to teach them how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. Why on earth would they ask this? Well, I think, and this is me personally, I think they asked this because they understood that everything that Jesus did flowed from the foundation of prayer. They watched him for three years, day in, day out, get up in the morning, go to a quiet place, pray and then come back and do amazing things. Prayer was so powerful. So the disciples, of course, said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And, and this account in Luke mirrors ours exactly in Matthew. It's, it's the same account in two different uh, viewpoints, two different people recording it. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father. Now, as I said, this would have been fascinating and mind-blowing to the disciples, where to us it's very familiar. You see, the disciples were Jewish boys. They were brought up in a Jewish worldview and they knew about God, but they knew the God of the 10 plagues. They knew the God that flooded and wiped out the earth. They knew the God of the blood on the doorposts. They knew the God of vengeance and judgment who wiped out families and nations and countries in Canaan. They knew God as all powerful, all majestic, all mighty, but they didn't know him as all personal. They knew about him, but they didn't really know him. And Jesus says, when you pray, you start by saying, our Father. And we as Protestants, we call this the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer and, and we know it and we recite it. The Catholics call it something different. And actually, I think the Catholics are on something here. And I won't say that very often from this platform. But the Catholics call it the Our Father. They don't call it the Lord's Prayer. They call it the Our Father. You see, everything that followed that flows from the view of God as Father. It shifts and changes and gives a correct view of who the Father is and what he means to us. So Jesus, in teaching the disciples to pray, beginning with our Father, didn't just restore a personal view of God that was lost in the garden. He gave them the strongest familial term that he could, Daddy. What he was saying is the God that you know, almighty, all-powerful, that is still the same God. But he is knowable, he is trustable, and first and foremostly, he's your Father. So all the things about him are correct, Mighty, powerful, with cosmos is out, but actually he also calls you sons and daughter. And again in Matthew 7 11, he says, If you who are sinners know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God in heaven, your Father, give to you? And as I said, when we begin to view God correctly, we also begin to view ourselves correctly. You see, if we view God as anybody less than Father, we will only view ourselves less than sons and daughters. We will never see ourselves as sons and daughters and therefore we will never approach him like that. Let me help illustrate this a bit better. And he's gonna hate me for doing this, but dad, coming up. My dad's here today. I think he was just sleeping. Come up, come help me. Now this is the only safe space that I can get one up on my dad, so it's worth doing, okay? So this is my dad. It's like looking into a... Um, it's like look, looking into a fun house mirror, isn't it? About what, what will be, okay. So my dad is a solicitor advocate, okay? So he's qualified as a solicitor and a barrister. Uh, runs a number of law practices, of which I'm very proud. I'd like to big you up a lot. Um, and when you go to my dad for advice, 
there's a whole chain that you have to go through, okay? There's interns, receptionists, the secretaries. It's almost like in his little kingdom, in his law firm. But he's got a set of skills, a little bit like Liam Neeson, although he doesn't kill anyone. I work more than one day a week. And he works more than one day a week. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a set of skills that when people find themselves in a difficult place and can't get out of, they go to my dad. Um, I'm not calling you God, but just go with the illustration, okay? So they come to my dad. But there's a formality. There's definitely a phone voice when you call my dad, okay? So my dad will go into the courts and he will represent you, but he'll, he'll also go against you. And he wears the funny wig and the robes. She should have bought today. That would have been helpful. <laughs> but whenever I need legal advice, not that I've done anything bad, but when I'm moving house, he has a team who works with him. I don't go through an intern. I don't call a receptionist. I call his mobile. And if he doesn't pick up his mobile, I've got his wife's number, my mum, so I can ring her as well. But what I'm saying is when I approach my dad, I don't do it from a place of formality. And there's a difference, isn't there, between a client and a child. Although I can be a client, you can go sit down, she'll look awkward, go on. Although I can be a client, <laughs> although I can be a client and I can need his services and I can use his services, I don't approach him like a client. And there's definitely no fin, no fee, no fee. Not even if I lose, not even if I win, there's no fee. Why? Because he's dad. Don't quite call him daddy, but go with it, okay? He's my dad. And this is exactly the same with the father, okay? When we find ourselves in a tight spot or even in a good spot and we just feel like we need to approach the master the, 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 of the cosmos, the God of the universe, we need to do it as sons and daughters. We don't do it as clients, we do it as children. And again, I think, let's just home in on this. As sons and daughters, everything that the father has is also ours. I hope I'm written into my Father's will. <laughs> Ephesians 1 tells us that when we come into the family of God, that we have every spiritual blessing. That is our inheritance. But we skimp around so often the spiritual, pussyfooting it around, putting on formal voices, using titles and grandiose language when God says, just come to me as son and as daughter. Lastly, a dead spot we can hit is when we approach God, and this comes out of, I think, point two, when we approach God with only half the picture, we show him half of us. When we only show God the good bits of Mike or Mohammed or Lars or Greg. Because again, there's that uncertainty, that fear, that formality. When I was in Swanwick on my way up in the car with Carl, feeling a little bit ropey and a little bit rubbish, Becky was at home with our children. Thankfully, they weren't left by themselves, okay? And it was also parents' evening, so I was missing parents' evening. And when I got home, I got a full rundown of parents' evening. And I got permission from my child to say this, so I'm not throwing him under the bus, okay? So Becky sat there with my two boys. And, and the teacher begins to talk about my two boys, both of them really intelligent. To get that from me. Okay. Both of them doing really well in school. Both of them doing really well in the class. But one of them, she said, one of them, this one, I won't tell you which one, you can guess yourself. This one is, she used this word, perfect. This one is Perfect. Everything he does is perfect. And then she looked at the other child who she gave a glowing report to and said, the only thing you could do better is be more like him. Now I'm going to have to put some money away for counselling sessions, I think, when he's a bit older. She didn't mean anything by it, but things like that can really stick. But this one is perfect. And when Becky told me this, I thought, did we, did we hire a child to go to school for this child? Because I understand that he has good aspects, but perfect isn't just a stretch. Perfect is ridiculous. You see, 
this child is very, very clever. Our teacher, his teacher told him that. He's very, very clever. So clever, in fact, that he puts on a front at school for six hours. We get the other 18, okay? And I'm not saying he's a bad kid. He's not. He's just a kid, but perfect. And this is how we approach God. Sometimes we approach God like we're the teacher's pet. Like God is our teacher. He's not our father. Yes, he's our teacher in some respect, but first and foremostly, he's our father. And we try and present this perfect picture that everything we do, you know, turns to gold. Every prayer we pray is magnificent. Everything we do. And, and somehow we kid ourselves into thinking that God doesn't really know all of us. And we do this in prayer. Oh God, thank you so much. We slip in the things we want, coated in all the things that we're good at. You know, God, I went to the prayer meeting this week, just in case you didn't know. And, and then I went to life group. And then I went to church. And while I was at church, I even served on a team garden. And God, I really could do another thousand pounds, but I'm planning to go to the prayer meeting tomorrow. We coat all this stuff. We present this perfect view. And, and when we go to the Bible, we see the prayer book of the Bible. It's called the book of Psalms. It's wedged right in the middle. 150 Psalms. And Psalms have been magnificent to the church since their inception and indeed the Jewish faith. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. We still pray prayers from the Psalms and actually, in fact, many of our worship songs that we sing are inspired by Psalms. But we have a little bit of a parent's view, view of the Psalms, I think, because although when we look at our Bibles, there's certain Psalms that are very thumbed, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 121, I, I, I look my eyes up to the hill, whence does my help come from? Psalm 139, you form me, God. They're all lovely and dovey. You form me, God, in the, in the depths of your, uh, my mother's womb, God. We love you so much, God. They're very gushy and we put them in songs. But there's a few that we don't preach about and we don't put in Psalms. Now, the Psalms were written by about five or six different people, okay? There was Solomon, Moses, Asaph and the sons of Korah. They wrote about 27 Psalms. And then there's 50 that are unnamed. We don't know who wrote them, although we think we know who wrote some of them. And then there's about 73, or there are 73, written by a man called King David. And King David's Psalms are often the ones we sing in church and, and we pray in church. They're the really lovey-dovey ones. David was so lovey-dovey that, that God named him a man after my own heart. But actually, if we're not doing the parents' evening thing and we're doing the, the real life family thing, there's some Psalms you read and actually get a little bit awkward reading. Let me show you a couple of lines. Imagine praying this or singing this in church. Oh God, strike all my enemies on the jaw and break their teeth. They slandered me without ceasing. They gnashed their teeth. He's really got something about teeth, hasn't he? They gnashed their teeth at me. How long, Lord, will you just look on? Make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels. May his day be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Amen. Can you imagine praying this? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This was after he just killed someone and had an affair. The person he killed was the wife's husband. And we sugarcoat the Psalms, but I love the fact that these are in the Bible. I love it. It makes me feel so much better about myself and my own prayers, my own meagre attempts, and when I'm feeling in a mood, that, that this gives us the permission to go to God, not as a teacher, but as a father. And this isn't to be irreverent. We're not saying to do this to be irreverent and we're not saying it to abuse grace. What I'm saying here is 
go to God with the reality of what is already there. Give Him everything, the good things and the bad things, the happy things and the sad things. Let's go back again to my friend Tyler Staten from Bridgetown Church. I love how he puts it, talking about the Psalms. He says, really, they're just honest. That's what makes the Psalms exemplary. God is looking for relationship, not well-prepared speeches spoken from perfect motives. God listened to overreacting rage, dramatic despair and guileless joy. And He called David still a man after his own heart. When it comes to prayer, I love this because it relates so well to parents' evening. God is not grading essays, He's talking to children. Say that again. God is not grading essays, He's talking to children. So if God can delight in prayers as dysfunctional as the ones wedged in the middle of the Bible, He can handle yours too without you having to clean them up first. I wonder if we can just stand. As people in this church, and indeed I have been one of them that have walked with Jesus for many years, but still struggle with some of this stuff of prayer. Yes, we have our high moments, the moments where we feel God is really present. And prayer, first and foremostly, is about presence. But it's not about what you pray, okay? There's no password to presence, using King James English or eloquent words. It's about the authenticity of where it comes from. There's no password that you need to do. God says, just come. And Jesus' examples, we need to pray, our Father, our Father. Paul in Romans 8, 26 takes it even further. He says, sometimes you just don't know what to pray. Maybe you've been hurt so badly. Maybe you're struggling so much that nothing comes out except groans. But he says, even in your groans, the Spirit comes and He meets with you. So even if you can't utter anything, the longing of your heart will speak to God. Let's view Him as Father. In just a moment, I'm gonna invite you, if you would like to, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, a Christian, to take communion this morning. We've got two stations here. There's one at the back in that corner and two at the top here. And when we take communion this morning, this is an act we're commanded to do by Jesus to, to stop and remember everything He has done for us. Everything. As Paul's already prayed, we're coming into the Easter season in the middle of Lent at the moment where we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. Now, oftentimes when we take communion or pray, we do the thing where we put the front on, whether by ourselves or with others. But I'd ask you this morning, before you come up to take communion, examine yourself and your heart and your relationship with God, not just your prayer life, and give everything within you over to Him. Say, God, is there anything within me, just like David prayed in the Psalms, is there anything within me that offends you? Point it out. Point it to me. I should do a couple of things as you come forward. Number one, come forward not having to put a front on. You don't need to come with big words or eloquence. If that's your thing, you can do so, but just come bare as you are. Number two, come with the view of God as Father and you as son or daughter. And number three, come honestly, completely as you are, warts and all. You don't have to shout it from the rooftops. You don't have to say anything out loud, but just give them uh, all of that to God. So I'll invite you now, just start to make your way forward. The team, you can come back as well. Come on, church, if you want to, come forward. I'm gonna stop talking in just a moment. And as we do this, we're just gonna have a moment of reflection. 
Come and grab your communion cup. Come back to your seats. And the team are going to lead us in a minute in a time of worship. But if you want prayer for anything I've said this morning, you can just hang around and remain at the front and one of our prayer team will come and join you. So once you grab your community, if you like prayer, please just come and stand down here at the front or remain at the top up there and our team will lead us in just a moment. Thank you, church.